Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that you will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the Lord, um, this is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Berid. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is God's word. You may be seated. A couple of things before we pray. Uh, You'll remember a couple of years ago, we were uh, the sponsoring and supporting congregation for a couple that did mission work down in uh, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And we got to know them really, really well over the years. And uh, although uh, they are no longer uh, supported by us, we still stay in contact with, uh, with Carlos and Elaine Castillo. And always, always glad to hear from them. I get to see Carlos every other year when we go down to Brazil for the, the, uh, the, connections, um, the, the, the connections retreat that we do for all of the missionary men in South America. But uh, we've been treated this morning. Their daughter Beatrice and her husband John are here with us this morning. Can we get Beatrice and John to stand? Can we get you, to, where are you guys right now? Can we get you to stand? Around here someplace. Maybe they have stepped out just for a moment, but we want to. <laughs> it is hot in here, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, Also, not only do we want to pray for them, but uh, as you know, uh, I became a grandfather uh, this week. And uh, 
uh, I'm not going to, to bore you with pictures, but if you want to come up, I've got a handful in my pocket that I can share with you. Uh, the really cool thing about this is that this little girl was born on my birthday. So uh, we will always share that. Uh, it was also the, the same date that my son-in-law and my daughter married. There's something about April 12th. We own, the Aptures own April 12th. We've got that one down, you know. So uh, it was such a great uh, present, and a, a lot of you have, uh, have, have seen some of the pictures, and, and you're being very, very gracious. It was such a, a great thing uh, to, to have my first granddaughter born on my birthday. I, I said to Jessica, I said, man, this is so great. Let's do this again next year. <laughs> She's, she just gave me that look that only a daughter can, can give to, uh, to a father. But uh, we're also, uh, this week, we were also blessed with, with another baby this week, um, the Myers, uh, David and Barbara Myers. They had their first grandchild born this week as well on Friday night. Lauren and Jimmy were out on the East Coast. Jimmy's in the Navy. Uh, they had their baby Friday night. Baby's name is Kaylee Griffith. It was a little over nine pounds, 20 and a half inches long. And so it's just been a great week for babies around here. And we're really, really thankful about that. Uh, the last thing before we pray, um, uh, inside of the announcement sheet, you're going to find the outline that we use uh, when we go through our study times together. And uh, many of you know that I, I get up really early in the morning. And about four o'clock this morning, I'm out walking the dog and and. Uh, God says, you need to rewrite the sermon. And so uh, the sermon I'm going to preach this morning, we're still going to be in Genesis chapter 16, but it's going to be different from the outline that you have in the announcement sheet. So what I'm going to ask you to do is just turn it over to that blank side and write at the top, and we're still going to call it life's mess because that's what we're talking about in Genesis chapter 16. But we're going to do some different things and talk about it in a different way uh, than what we originally... <laughs> It, 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 it is one of the most disconcerting things in the world when on Sunday morning, just a couple of hours before you preach, you rewrite a sermon. It's just, that's not cool. But we're going to do it this morning, and let's pray about this and ask God to bless us as we think about Abraham and Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael and what's happening in the story of Abraham. Father, we are grateful to you for all of the blessings that come to us. And there are so many, and we've we're reminded through singing this morning, Father, not only to count every one of them that we've received from you, but just to be thankful because all of this stuff comes to us freely, freely, freely. And when we think, Father, about the grace that comes into our lives, we, we want to be transformed in such a way that we reflect the greatness of your being, that we trust you, and that we're not afraid and that we, we go through this life, Father, knowing that we are not alone in any of the things that we encounter. And so thank you, Father, for this text. And we pray, Father, in all the ways that it teaches us that you will open our eyes and open our ears in such a way that we discern it. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The irreverent and irreligious George Carlin, comedian, once said... Here's all you need to know about men and women. Women are crazy, men are stupid, and the reason women are crazy is that men are stupid. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you agree with that. But if you know anything about George Carlin, uh, it, you know, it's his attempt to be funny with a very crass half-truth. The truth of the matter is every human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth makes decisions that they 
live to regret. I mean, I can think about uh, just handfuls and handfuls and pocketfuls of decisions that I've made in my own lifetime that deal with my own life personally or decisions that I've made in, in, in career or, or any, you know, all the different areas in my life where I, I regretted it. I wish I would have done something different. And the history of the world is a history of repeated mistakes. We say, you know, we need to know history so we don't keep making the same mistakes. When have we not repeated any of the mistakes that we have made since the Garden of Eden? The history of the world is a history of repeated mistakes. The evolutionists have gotten it wrongly. We are not connected to monkeys. We are connected to a monkey wrench. And we monkey wrench every part of our lives, and this is especially true in those areas where we have to wait. Where the things that we want, the things that we desire, the things that we think are due us are delayed. One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, taught me how to read the Psalms, and uh, along with Walter Brueggemann, how to read the Psalms and how to appreciate them. He has been one of the greatest writers and helped me also to understand what discipleship is about. He writes in his first book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he writes, One aspect of the world that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. Now, he wrote this book in 1980. We now live in the 21st century where things are so much faster. He is even more right today than he was in 1980. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and it can be done efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. We all struggle with patience. And we all struggle with perseverance, especially as it pertains to the promises of God that He has made to us about, about our life and how to live our life and what to expect in this life. And, and when we are not patient with God, and when we, we become impatient with the promises of God, what we tend to do is to, in, to create these incredibly messy life situations. And when we tire of waiting and we take matters into our own hands, we make a mess of life. Let me give you a definition to write down. It'll be up here on the screen. A definition of patience that uh, is going to work for our thinking about patience and perseverance throughout Genesis chapter 16. Patience is the acceptance that the solution may be further down the road and even different than the one that you have in mind. Patience is the acceptance that the solution may be further down the road and even different than the one you have in mind. You know that what the irony of the faith is? That if you want perseverance, you've got to persevere through something. You know what the irony of the faith, faith is when it comes to patience? You don't get patience until you start practicing patience. And if there's anything to remember in this sermon this morning, it's up here on the screen. Say it with me. Keep calm and trust God. Say that with your outside voices. Keep calm and trust God. Now let's talk about this waiting game that we find in Genesis chapter 16. And what we're going to do is just kind of work our way through the text. And the first point I want you to write down on the back of that outline is this. The issues of our heart, the issues that we struggle with, the, the issues that, 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 that really sap a lot of our emotional energy and a lot of our resources, they always surface as a doubt. And in this particular case, and because we're talking as a family of God, they, they surface as a doubt about God. Now, as I said early, the history of the world is a history of repeat, repeated mistakes. 
We keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And so what we find in the Garden of Eden is that God has created this place for man and woman, first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, to be together and to be in this idyllic situation, this perfect situation where all of their needs are taken care of, and they are allowed to eat anything in that, in, in that forest, in, inside of that garden, except one of the fruit of one tree, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then by the time you get to chapter 3, there is the appearance of this serpent that shows up. And what does the serpent do? The serpent begins to create a doubt about the goodness of God and begins to create doubt in the purposes of God. And so what does the woman do? The woman begins to think about it, and the woman begins to think about the truths that have been uh, brought to her about this fruit, and the, the text says that she took the fruit and she ate it, and then she gave the fruit to her husband, Adam, and he ate as well. History is about to be repeated. In Genesis chapter 16, we find Sarai, and Sarai is struggling with the meaning of her life as this story opens up. She is unable to have children. She's been trying, she's been waiting, she's been mourning, she's been desiring, she's been thinking about him, she's been preparing for him, but she is unable to have children, which means in her culture, she is identifying herself and other people are identifying her in that culture as a barren person. Now, uh, before we move on, let me just say something here sort of as an aside. This story is not about infertility as it is about trusting God. Infertility and the waiting for a child and the lack of a child, all of that is just a circumstance, but the, the key, the point is trusting God. And what does it mean to walk as a disciple when we trust God in everyday life, even when there are delays in the things that we desire in this life or that God has promised us? It could be anything. We could talk about marriage. We could talk about education. We could talk about a career. All of that would serve the same kind of context. Now, in her culture, you were part of a, of a larger culture. The, the idea of being an individual and individual, individualistic thinking and decision-making is something very, very modern. It's just been around the last couple hundred a year, uh, hundred years that we've begun to think, especially in the Western world, of thinking individually. In the time that she is living in this ancient world, you were part of a group, you were part of a family, a clan, you were part of a village, and those needs were always bigger than the individual needs. And when you married, it wasn't always necessarily for love. Sometimes it was, but mainly it was for the advancement of your family or the advancement of, of your clan. And one of the ways that a woman got, uh, garnered honor in that culture was through the bearing of children. Now, one of the really interesting things is that, you know, in, in these ancient cultures, and not just the Hebrew culture, but all of them around the Mediterranean world, uh, a husband was always closer to his sister than he was to his wife because the sister was blood and the wife wasn't. She was, she was outside. And so one of the ways that a woman was able to garner the, the, the honor or to get you know, the, the honor poker chips on her end of the table was by having lots and lots of kids. And the reason for that, you know, children were a labor pool. You're talking about an agrarian society, and it took children, it took lots of hands, it took lots of feet to be able to take care of the livestock and to harvest and to plow and to plant. Children were a, an ever-increasing, ever-needed 
labor pool. Children were also there for protection. At some point, the, the, these little kids, they grow up into brutes, and they become the kind of people that can protect the village and protect the people. Also, children were the retirement plan. The more children, you know, you had a 401 children, 401 kids back in that day to prepare for your retirement, right? Because there was a high mortality rate, the more children, the better. The more children, the better. And, and women who had lots and lots of children, they were the heroes of the clan, heroes of the family, heroes of the village. They were national heroes. And Sarai is beautiful. She is absolutely gorgeous, but she doesn't have children. And she feels like a failure. Now again, before we judge her, let's remember that every culture, even the culture that we live in, defines the winners and the losers. That's why in our own culture, in the 21st century, in Western civilization, we have eating disorders, and we have addictions, and we have rampant credit card debt, and you could go on and on and on. But all of those are the result of feeling somehow like we are barren in our 21st century culture. And what Sarah is doing is what we do in our own culture when we are not living a life that is defined by our culture as winning is we begin to beat ourselves up. And that's what Sarah's doing. She's beating herself up. She feels like a failure. And this emotional issue, the sadness over no children, is going to become a spiritual one because she's going to wonder, what in the world is God good for if God is not giving me kids? And what she has done is she has turned God into a supplier of a commodity. Sarai has believed the promise of God too. That we will leave Ur of the Chaldees and we will go up to Haran and at some point we'll get into the promised land and God is going to make my husband Abraham, of whom I am his wife, we are going to be a family whose descendants are going to be like dust and like sand. We are going to, we are going to bless the world. The name is going to be great and it's going to happen through us. Genesis 16, verse 2. Now, God is not coming through. And we hear uh, Sarai speak for the very first time in the Bible. The Lord has kept me from having children. Do you hear it? The Lord has kept me from having children. God is, it's not that God is not just blessing me. It's that God is opposing me as well. And Sarai, because she is the wife of a great man like Abraham, who is now an international figure because of what has happened in Genesis chapter 14, Sarai is not used to having her hands tied. And so she goes to her husband Abraham and tells them that, that they are no longer on God's timeline that we are taking matters into our own hands. We are now on Sarai's timeline. And so she says in verse 2, Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Do you hear it? Not only is God not blessing us, but He's opposing us. And so we've got to take matters into our own hands. Here, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. This is a common problem of faith. I have to help God out with the solution. I can't wait any longer. I have to take matters into my own hands. I have to help God out with the solution. But what is the one thing that I ask you to remember at the beginning of the sermon? Up here on the screen, keep calm and trust God. Do you remember who's telling the story? 
when Genesis chapter 16 is being told for the first time, it's being told by this, this great individual of the Bible. It's, it's Moses. And Moses is telling the story to Israelites getting ready to enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering around in the desert. And as he's telling this story, he is remembering all too well the day that he recognized that he was the one that God had chosen to lead his people out of their enslavement, out of their slavery in Egypt. They were going to make this great exodus. And what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. And he kills an Egyptian. He murders an Egyptian who was beating up a Hebrew. And, and Moses is forced to flee to the desert of Midian. And you know what the irony is? The exodus is delayed for decades. And so Sarai exploits another human being. This, this young Egyptian slave girl, she, she exploits this, this young girl. She becomes impregnated by her husband, Abraham. And basically, what Sarah is saying is, Sarah is saying, when it comes to choosing God or choosing the baby, Sarah is going to choose the baby. She tells Abraham, the woman can be yours so that the baby can be mine. And, 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 and notice how, how this begins to kind of permeate throughout their, their community, which is the second point, faithlessness always creates collateral damage. Let me tell you two truths about sin. There are more than that, but these are the two big ones. The first, there are no hidden sins. You know, David thought that, you know, all of this stuff with Bathsheba and Uriah and her, her, uh, his adultery with her and the subsequent murder of Uriah, all of that could be hidden. And what does 2 Samuel tell us? That David thought that everything was cool, but God saw what had happened. The second truth is this. There are no contained sins. We say in our culture a lot, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And you hear that said a lot, you know, I'm, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not hurting anybody. And an example, and, and I don't need, mean to necessarily pick on this particular one, but it's just an easy one to do it with. You know, you hear people talk, you know, in, in, in drug cultures, you hear them say things like, you know, I'm not hurting anybody but my, myself if I'm hurting anybody. I'm here to tell you, there are a lot of people that are exploited around the world and a lot of people that are murdered so that you can get high. There are no contained sins. So in verse 3, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband. Took and gave. Took and gave. Took and gave. Does that remind anyone of another story where a woman took something and gave it to her husband? Hagar is, is, is a servant to Sarai. She's a slave. It's, it, it, this is not this Downton Abbey kind of a relationship between Lady Mary and Anna. Hagar, in Sarai's eyes, she is a piece of property. She's an object. She's a thing. She's a thing to be manipulated, a thing to be used. She's an end to an, she's a, she's an ends to a mean. She's a piece of property to say right and nothing, nothing more. And it's a wife giving a slave girl to her husband in order to have children 
And although that was nothing new in the ancient world, and it was, it was socially and culturally acceptable, there's just something about the way that humans think that makes it seem so reasonable that it actually ends up as creating a lot of collateral damage because it's not the way of God. Proverbs 30, verses 21 and 23, there are under, under three things the earth trembles. And that's sort of um, that's hyperbole on Solomon's part to basically say, man, there are things that can happen out there that just sh- can, sh- can shake and rock your world. And under four, it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a godless fool who gets plenty to eat, a contemptible woman who gets married, and a servant who displaces her mistress. And when Hagar becomes pregnant, she has gained some status that Sarai doesn't have. Which means that she can sort of look Sarai in the eye now instead of, of, of kowtowing to Sarai as she has done over the, probably picked up from the time that they were down in Egypt and, and, and that period of time. She no longer has to kowtow to Sarai. She looks Sarai right in the eye and Sarai is angry. Which brings us to Abram and the third point, and that is the eyes, the faith eyes are always open. They're always open. Here's, here's a question. I mean, it's, it's so simple. It's nearly insulting to ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why do you drive with your eyes open? So you don't crash, right? Driver's education in high school, interesting experience in my life. Uh, there were three of us in the car at one time with the driver's ed teacher, myself and two other uh, young girls, same age. I'd known them for several years, gone to school together. Now we're in the car together learning how to drive. I do okay. Uh, this other girl does okay. And then this other girl gets behind the wheel. And for large portions of our drive experience, this other girl and I are in the back seat holding hands and praying, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord, please. <laughs> the first time, you know, we all get on the highway. She is scared to death, and rightfully so. I mean, when you're, you're learning how to drive on the Capitol Beltway, that's not the easiest place to learn how to drive. And what I remember, she's just going slow, 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 and cars are kind of whizzing by as we're trying to get on this entrance ramp. And the teacher says, uh, step on it. So she closes her eyes and guns it. And I mean, we start hauling, you know, up uh, Highway 50 there, and, uh, and all we're doing is holding hands in the back and, you know, embracing for impact, and the driver's ed teacher is going, open your eyes and watch where you're going. Open your eyes and watch where you're going. That's great advice. <laughs> open your eyes and watch where you're going. Abraham, and he just shines in Genesis 15, right? I mean, he just gets it. But he's tarnished in Genesis 16. In, in 16.2, it literally says that Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, when God is talking about his, his anger and disappointment in this first sin, he says to Adam, because you heeded or you listened to the voice of your wife, what he has done is abdicated his role as the bearer of a divine promise for a second-rate human solution which is what Paul is talking about when in Galatians chapter 4 when people are thinking about do I really want in my you know in my walk with Christ to continue or is there something else I should be doing that is more meaningful and is a more direct route to God 
And in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 23, he uses Genesis chapter 16, you know, Hagar and, 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 and uh, Sarai and Ishmael and Isaac, he says, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Why did Abraham not say no? Sarai's his wife. El Elyon, the possessor and the creator of the heavens and the earth, had made the promise. Abraham's not watching where he's going. Abraham did not choose the miracle, but instead chose the man-made solution that did nothing but create a bigger mess and a bigger crisis in his life. And perhaps the delay, the birth of the promised son, is the result of the same thing that Moses did in delaying the exodus for 40 years. You know, God does not speak again to Abraham for 13 years. God does not speak again to Abraham for 13 years, which is the time it took for Ishmael to grow into manhood in that culture. You have to keep your eyes open and watch where you're going. Last thing we'll say and we're done. God really does know your fear. When, when Sarai gets angry, you know, Abraham gets calloused. He makes Hagar back into a slave, a piece of property. And Sarai beats Hagar and forces her to flee to Egypt. It, it's rather ironic that Sarai is treating this Egyptian girl the same way that the Egyptians are going to treat Sarai's descendant somewhere down the road. But she runs, she flees. And beside that water spring on the road to Shur, which is on the way back to Egypt, Hagar meets this mysterious individual, this, this angel of the Lord. It appears at, at first to, to be this angel, but then appears to be the one who blesses Hagar. And this one tells her to go home. And he says, God has heard your cries, but you're going to have to return and you're going to have to submit, but your son Ishmael will be blessed. And Hagar sees, says, I have seen the one that sees me. I have seen the one who sees me in verse 13. Hagar is, is, is the person in the story that is, is so beat up by the collateral damage of people taking matters into their own hands and not living in light of, of, of the wisdom of God and the relationship of trust, love with God. She's the one that is beat up. And God comes into her misery and, and blesses her in the same way that Christ comes into our sinful life and saves us. You see, he too had a couple of opportunities when the temptation for him was to take matters into his own hands. Right there at the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, right after he's baptized and, and the Spirit has sent him into the wilderness and he's been there for, for 40 days, Satan appears to him and says, you know what, you don't have to go to the cross, you can, you can, you can take matters into your own hands. 
I know the Spirit has led you into the wilderness, but God's not going to take care of you. Why don't you take some of these rocks and turn it into bread? You don't have to go to the cross. You can exalt yourself, and people will say, what, what, what an incredible, exalted individual you are if you get on the high place of the temple and, and drop. Because God's not going, you know, the angels will catch you. And that was just foreshadowing of another time when Jesus is in that garden. And it's just hours before, I mean, the torture and the brutality is going to begin. And he, he's, he's struggling. Struggling so much that there's blood mixed with his sweat. It's, it's such an anxious moment. And the temptation is to take matters into his own hands. I don't want to do this. Don't make me do this. Let this cup pass from me. But I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Your will is going to be done in my life. And because that's true, because God heard us in our misery and heard us in our cries for help, has come and has taken on that misery and taken on our sin in order for us to find a blessing. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And, you know, as we're thinking about all of the things that we face in this life, it, it's so important that, that we, we can go through this life with a poise. We can go with a strength. We can, we can go with, 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 a, with a buoyancy in this life, regardless of whatever it is that we face. We can be calm because we trust a God who has revealed Himself to be trustworthy. He, he, has, he has revealed Himself to love. He has revealed Himself as powerful. He has revealed himself as everything that we need to become the human being that we were always supposed to be. And as we sing this song, it's going to be an invitation to, to anyone who would like to make that God who sees them their God and Savior and Father for all of eternity. And we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front that can talk to you about how that can happen. But for the rest of us, let's praise this God who blesses us in such profound ways by standing and singing to Him right now. How do you explain? How do you?